From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, May 17th, 2018. This is episode 55, Tacky Goes to Coventry. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm your host, Jason Snell. As always, I'm joined by two wonderful guests, first time on the Download podcast, but uh, you may you may know him from other things like uh, the Icon Factory and Twitterific and inventing lots of Twitter concepts uh, and coming up with the idea for a Twitter app in the shower. It's Craig Hockenberry. Hello. Hi, Jason. Hi, Stephen. How are you guys doing? Good. good, good. Welcome to the welcome to the show. We we um at the last minute we had a uh, had a, uh, a need for a new guest and Twitter things happened and I thought here's an idea maybe we could talk to Craig about Twitter if you have any do you have any opinions about Twitter? Oh, just uh, just a couple. Okay, yeah. well we'll get to those. I'm sure it won't take long. <laughs> um, also joining us, a uh, returning guest to download executive editor at PC World, Melissa Rio Frio. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Jason. It's good to have you back. It's fantastic to be here. All right. um, Let's get down to it. We might as well just get going. The most interesting stories of the week is chosen by me and, of course, by our download producer, Yanni. Oh, wait. Laurel? Oh, no. Uh, Oh, no. It's Stephen Hackett. That's who it is. You're not Yanni or Laurel. Those those two got fired. Uh, Welcome back. I missed you last week. I almost missed that entire meme. I've had a lot of, like, offline stuff to do this week, and I came back and I had no idea what was happening on Twitter. People were just spouting off about uh, a sound file somewhere yeah i still don't really know what's going on with it i, like I, I it still i have no idea either so it's pretty cool it's... we're not going to talk about it <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to figure out the dress thing so <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's where yeah. i'm at yeah it is i mean one of my favorite things about twitter is when it goes insane about optical illusions or other things involving your brain because uh that's kind of fun that's like the fun part where everybody's like whoa my mind is blown about this thing but uh that's only happens every now and then or or um when like uh goats are on the loose somewhere and there are are aerial (laughs) photos of fleeing goats those are the two things that are good anyway let's get down to a topic number one uh we spent a lot of time last week talking about microsoft and the build conference but there's some news this week about microsoft too that i think is interesting and worth talking about uh it's about surface there's news about surface now first it's not the surface that you're thinking on Tuesday, Microsoft took the wraps off of something called Surface Hub 2. If you did not know what Surface Hub was, I can uh, forgive you. It was sort of a weird experimental product that Microsoft put out that turned out to have a bigger audience than uh, they maybe expected, which I think uh, companies like to see. They love to have that moment where it's like, oh, this one, we, th- we tried this one out and people actually really liked it. Surface Hub 2 has been announced. It is, uh, like its predecessor, a big d- uh, touchscreen display that you stick on the wall of a conference room or you put on a, on a big easel. It's mostly used with uh, business applications. They're not cheap, but it's a, uh, uh, let's see, there's a 50-inch model, gr- bigger than a 4K display. It's meant to be a center point in a conference room and an office for screen sharing, video conferencing, collaborative note-taking, and more. A bunch of people can get together and put things up on the board. You can actually uh, slide 
uh, like many of them together in a tile and have like a big wall of them, which again, not cheap. There's a tie-in with Steelcase where they're making mounting hardware and different options. You can tilt it from portrait to landscape um, and it does a, it, it looks like a fun kind of animation where it tr- sort of tries to hold things still as you tilt, which is kind of a cool effect for something that's uh, not being carried in your hand but is mounted somewhere. You can, you can get away with that. Anyway, it's a really interesting product. It's going to cost many, many thousands of dollars, but... So far, Microsoft says they've sold more than 5,000 of the original Surface Hub. So, again, not a huge product, but I think an interesting product and an interesting niche, especially for Microsoft that really wants to speak to people in business. Um, So, let's start with Surface Hub itself. Uh, Very cool video, very cool idea for a product. I... uh, I w- definitely was flashing back to my time spent in, in meetings at uh, IDG, uh, my former employer and Melissa's current employer, about all of this. So, Melissa, what do you think about Surface Hub 2 and what Microsoft is doing here? I uh, I think we're all very intrigued by it. Uh, it's nice that it's not 88 inches across anymore. Um, I big. thought it was very... <laughs> yeah, it was big. And I think it was very healthy of um, Microsoft to admit that it was kind of like, you know, introducing a... an elephant or something. It was, it was just too big, very unwieldy and it was $22,000. So the cool thing about the new one, not just that it's smaller, but that if you do want that bigger screen, you can daisy chain up to four together. And they have a really cool picture of a tidal wave, you know, moving across these four displays. And so it's a lot more flexible. And you think about corporations where they have a huddle room, they're not going to put an 88-inch $22,000 screen in there, but they might put in a 50.5-inch, probably eight or $9,000 screen in there. Um, so um, it's definitely a more portable uh, and, dare I say, scalable idea. Um, from Microsoft. And what's also always been cool about this product is the writing, that you can scribble on it. It'll actually save your scribbles. So instead of our standing there and writing with, you know, markers that are drying out on the idea wall and worrying about who's going to erase it and all that stuff, it just records it for you. And it's always been able to do that. I like the idea of, I mean, the demo is great, right? The demo is great. And yeah. if you're in a Microsoft world, which is one of the reasons why my Microsoft wants to do this, the idea that you can, this is, this is your collaborative space. People don't want just whiteboards. I remember when they did like smart whiteboards where you could like print out a copy of the whiteboard afterward yeah. or, or record everything, like every pen stroke on the whiteboard and play that back later. And this is like a progression there where it seems more useful. Everybody's got their data, uh, data on their devices now. So to have a sort of sh- shared digital space on a wall is kind of interesting when it's not being used in that way. And this is what I think might be a, a, a bigger use for it. It becomes kind of a status board. People uh, might remember that Panic Software had an iOS app called Status Board that did some similar stuff to what's in that Microsoft demo. And uh, I always thought that stuff was pretty cool. We had one at IDG for a little while that kept crashing because it was, you know, on an old iPad. But um, I, I, you know... My question is practicality. Like, it's a great video. It's a great demo. But is a shared giant tablet is that who's that for is that something that 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 is super practical obviously there's several thousand people who have or companies who bought these and put them in their conference rooms i'm just is the collaboration aspect where this is going to go or is it more just like a really big video conferencing slash status board kind of thing well we've all seen video conferencing technologies come and go we have some of them in our offices i think the 
the what Microsoft is bringing is that because it's tied into the Microsoft account and all the Microsoft stuff that your corporation probably already runs, uh, there is a lot more collaboration um, you can do. And I wasn't around for the last podcast where you talked about build, so I'm not sure if you brought up this demo they did at uh, one of their keynotes where they showed this this cone, this Cortana cone that could listen to you, talk to you, and also see you. Did you see that? So mm. they put this cone in the middle of the conference room table in this demo. Uh, people walk in. It recognizes you because it has your picture from your Microsoft corporate account. It says hello. And it recognizes the person who is leading the meeting, you know, who set it up. And it says, hi, Jason, would you like to start your meeting? And um, so it's a little creepy because this little machine can see you. <laughs> But it's listening to you. It listens for keywords where you say, oh, let's follow up on that or let's schedule that. And it will go in and do follow ups and schedules on your calendar and and ping the people who are responsible for it. And so the idea that um, what's cool for me is that it's moving from this, you know, um, video conferencing thing stuck in a room to a video conferencing thing that's actually connected to other applications and data that you're using every day and it even knows your name so creepy but potentially very productive as well i like the video conferencing stuff i like the uh, uh the idea that uh i mean look google does stuff like this too they've had little boxes that do this they've got all of their meeting room tech we talked about that at idg at one point like could we put yeah could we put little google boxes in every room attached to a tv and they had a they mm-hmm. had a, a camera and you basically could without going down that route of the super expensive like corporate video conferencing systems which we had like in one room like yeah. the idea was with google you could put it in every meeting room everywhere and if you had a, a company that was all over the world or all over the country uh, or even just within a building or a complex you could very quickly see you know see the google calendar for the room uh mm-hmm. reserve a time start up conversations with the other rooms and stuff like that like i like i like that idea um and i get why microsoft would want to be a part of it um and i i mean the the bottom line is this seems like a product that's being driven by the customers that they actually there is a market for a product like this and who i mean who better than microsoft to do this it seems like this is this this is their bread and butter getting into a business technology conversation and not letting google kind of elbow them out of another area that they're traditionally strong in I totally agree. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting product. I'm not going to get one though. I've got a question here: is you know, this is second generation piece of hardware. Um, is there any kind of second generation for the software behind it, or is it just hmm. you know, new shiny? Well, the original Surface Hub was pretty limited. It um, only had whiteboard capability and Skype. So, um, so apparently the new one, which isn't coming out until next year, they've got plenty of time, uh, is going to be more capable. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons this thing is so expensive is because the display itself is you know, super crazy expensive, but then they're also sticking a computer in the back to be a windows machine for this thing. Interesting. The, the software thing also, I, I always worry about like business software for a few thousand customers they've got like surface stuff that they can and pc stuff that they can that they can leverage 
for this. But at the same time, it's also like business software famously is often not very good because it's written for a very small group and it's and sort of like designed to sell the, the hardware and not necessarily support the users. So I wonder about mm-hmm. that. But they do have a bunch of the, the, the stuff that they built for Surface on smaller scales and other touchscreen you know, PCs and things that they could they, they could apply here that could potentially make it fine. Speaking of Surface, by the way, another thing that happened this week is that there's a Bloomberg report that says that Microsoft is working on a uh, a Surface, a $400 version of the Surface tablet, uh, reducing the price, reducing the price of the accessories. The Bloomberg angle is that it's meant to rival the iPad, although I've talked to a bunch of people who kind of observe this, and they've all said, mm, I think the ship has sailed for Microsoft and the iPad. This seems more like it's about blunting the uh, the growth of Chromebooks. So that they can, uh, so that Microsoft can participate in, down at the uh, at the lower prices that are available for Chromebooks in education and elsewhere. Um, Melissa, what do you think about uh, cheap Surface tablet? We've heard this story before, but you know Microsoft is de- de- definitely taking new swings at a bunch of the markets that uh, it, it it has tried in the past, uh, like having an ARM uh, ARM computers, which is a thing that they tried once, and then they're like, no, 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 that wasn't it. We're going to do it this time, and so here they are talking about a low cost Surface. What do you think? Yeah, I think for a long time Windows user, whenever Microsoft tries to go low end, it scares us because we have been here before. And I think the, 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 the simple technological truth about Windows is that it's, um, it can be too much for a lower end machine. And then what they do is they go, Oh, okay. So we'll make this limited version of Windows. You know, we'll call it RT and we'll put that on the little tablet and it'll be just fine, but it's not. And and they're actually going through it again right now with Windows 10 S, which is also a uh, limited version of Windows that's designed to run on lower end products. And no one wants to use it because it isn't just like the Windows that they know and love. Uh, I think Microsoft maybe should do a better job of managing expectations uh, if they really feel they need this. Um, but uh, I mean, right now they have this new effort called Always Connected PCs, which have these things that look like a PC, but they're run by a Qualcomm chip and they cannot handle full Windows. So they're running Windows 10S and that brings on the limitations that Windows 10S has. And so we're all looking at this like, well, we're, what have you done to my PC? I don't want this thing. Uh, and so my, yeah, I, I would agree with you, Jason, that as far as tablets go, the ship has sailed. Uh, people call tablets iPads, even if they aren't iPads, because iPad has really defined the space. Um, if this is a $400 low-end tablet, it is probably going to be running Windows 10S, which I'm sure has its good points, but is limiting. And so uh, when I saw that news, I thought, oh, great, another thing with Windows 10S that we're going to want to upgrade to Windows 10 Pro, but then it's going to be really slow and we're just going to be disappointed. Well, I think this is a little bit like the argument about the low-cost iPad that's out there now, which is, no, it's not at the cutting edge of the technology that exists. It is, it's not. It's meant to be, uh, have a lower price point and be able to reach, Apple talked about education, although it'll reach a lot of people beyond education. And it, it did 
echo the iPad in that way. I just, you know, yeah, again, I, I don't think Microsoft is trying to say we're going to be a tablet like the iPad. I think they're saying, please consider us instead of a Chromebook because we're more versatile like the iPad, but we're, you know, but we're, we're also more versatile than the iPad in some ways. So I don't know. It's a, uh, I like, you know what? I like Microsoft trying all this stuff. I like Microsoft building its own hardware when, when it needs to, it feels it needs to, that it, it's got partners, but it's not going to be limited by them. Like every time I see Microsoft try something like this, I like it, even though sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes it does like with that original, uh, surface hub that was just kind of weird. And, uh, businesses really liked so like this is this is good this is good stuff for microsoft i like to see them uh them giving it a swing like this microsoft is in such a interesting place right now where they they are still very much a consumer company but at the same time they are very much an enterprise company and when we spoke about that ipad event apple had back i don't know six or eight weeks ago that conversation came up about you know what kids use in schools are they going to be more inclined to use that technology when they can make their own purchasing decisions. And I know for a lot of people my age in our sort of mid thirties, uh, using Macs at school sort of made the Mac, uh, a, a more obvious choice to us when we could buy our own computer in college or something. And, you know, Microsoft doesn't have the, uh, the foothold in education that Apple, but especially Google has now. And I, I just wonder if they're looking at the same sort of situation of, Hey, if we can get into schools, if we can get into these low cost situations uh, that may put consumers like in the pipeline for our stuff as they move throughout their their life with technology. And uh, I find always find that angle interesting because it's it's like super cynical to think about it that way. But I think it is a factor that these companies are taking into account. Oh, I totally agree. I just think that the the thing they're trying to do, which is push this Windows 10S on people, I just think it's really dangerous because it's not full Windows. And yeah. people who use full Windows know that. And they're like, I'm not going to use this thing. Yeah, it's it's. I, I think it's just tough because they just have this operating system that's honestly just it just takes a toll on a computer. Uh, I use a Chromebook every single day and um, I can do almost everything like like 97% of the things I need to do, I can do on that Chromebook. And it doesn't have all this legacy burden that Windows has. And so they have a real problem there that I don't think they're going to be able to do unless they start over and write Windows as a much lighter operating system. And that's not going to happen. So, um, yeah, I, I think they kind of like they had their heyday in schools when they were kind of the only thing around. Uh, and and just what they're seeing is that they it's just a challenge now because the Chromebooks are so much lighter lighter weight you know technologically yeah yeah that's the, I mean that's the challenge for Microsoft and Apple is is mm-hmm. that Chromebooks are I, I what's funny is that I I hear people then jump to the next argument which is and once they're in schools they'll have the future generations tied to Chromebooks forever I kind of <laughs> I kind of don't believe that argument because I don't yeah. I, I I having knowing people who had Chromebooks like. I don't know notice a lot of love of kids of their Chromebooks. They love their their smartphones. <laughs> they don't love the Chromebooks. I, in fact, I wonder if the prevalence of Chromebooks in schools is going to turn a whole generation of kids off of laptops because oh, Chromebooks sure. are cheap and that's why they're there is they're cheap and they're not necessarily built very well, but they're cheap and they let you do kind of old computery type stuff. And I'm not sure that that doesn't just send the message that old computery type stuff is dumb and cheap and crappy. And I'm just going to stay with my, uh, with my smartphone in the future. 
Chrome. Well, my daughter switched from a Chromebook to a MacBook, and she loved her Chromebook, but she went to the MacBook, and she's like, oh, this runs like real programs and stuff. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah I, I think the thing that's probably more important to Google anyway is, is the data that people are generating while they're a student. Right. You're going to have all sorts of Google Docs, you know, spreadsheets. Yeah. My take- understanding is that that is that all the Google education stuff gets walled off and it's in a school ID that's created by the school and that Google doesn't has a totally different sort of data handling system because uh, because there's so much regulation about uh, personal information for right, kids right. and for schools. So for, for it's funny, Google's education play. I think what they want is they want to get everybody used to using Google Docs. Right. So I was the, just going to I was yeah. just going to say, yeah, it's more about yes. learning the experience, you know. Know, having that that knowledge of how to use these apps, being comfortable with working on a, you know, in a web browser rather than in a in a native app. Although it sounds like with your daughter Jason, that wasn't the case, right? Well, she she, she, she likes from the, the, she likes Google Docs and still uses Google Docs on the time uh, all the time on her MacBook. But she had a moment where she was like, "Need to edit some video," and she's like, D- "You know, no, it's not going <laughs> yeah. to happen." And uh, right. that that and she re- realized, "Oh yeah, there's this whole class of things that I need to go borrow one of my parents." computers to do because this chromebook can't can't do it yeah it's that three percent that melissa was just talking about exactly. right yeah it's, it, and that's that's an important three percent right it's, it's the critical three percent but yeah yeah all right um we got more to talk about but uh i want to take a break and tell you about our sponsor this week this episode of download brought to you by pingdom if your website was down right now, if visitors couldn't access your content, if they couldn't click that buy button and buy something from you, how would you know? Would you know? You might not know until it's too late and you've lost business. This happened to me. I actually had a uh, my server rebooted due to a security update. And then there was, and I quote, because I went to the website and looked, a hardware issue with the device on which my server was located <laughs> and it was uh they were working on it and they fixed it and there was nothing i i uh i could do but it meant that i could immediately send out a bunch of tweets saying okay the site's down right now but it'll be back up in a little bit and i did that because i got an alert from pingdom about it and that's why you need pingdom they will give you peace of mind you need to know your site is working and they'll let you know the moment your site goes down in whatever way is best for you they're dedicated to making the web faster and more reliable if you're a pingdom user monitoring the availability and performance of your server database or website will be a breeze. They use more than 70 different global test servers to emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. So start monitoring your site today. All Pingdom needs to get started is the URL. They will take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting this show and all of RelayFM. All right, let's take a moment to talk about Twitter. There's uh, every week there's news from Twitter. Um, first, I want to start off with this concept they've got, they announced called the Healthy Conversations Initiative. Um, in the blog post, uh, the company said that less than 1% of accounts make up the majority of accounts reported for abuse, but a lot of what's reported doesn't violate Twitter's rules. Now, rather than change the rules, <laughs> Twitter has decided to use machine learning, human review, uh, and some other signals in order to decide whether a tweet can be shown by default. Now, I can mock Twitter for not uh, not just changing its rules to, to deal with these issues, but I get the point that, that they feel that maybe there's a point beyond which they don't want to go for uh, setting rules for everybody when what they really want to do is find the accounts that are no good and that are full of garbage and hide them by default 
And uh, I think this is actually something that that a lot of people who've been uh, seeing abuse on Twitter have been asking for for a while. Twitter knows all sorts of things about these accounts. And among the things they're going to look at is like, has the email address actually been confirmed or is it a fake email address? Are accounts created in bulk? They can analyze the content of the entire Twitter account and realize that this is kind of a garbage account and hide content from it. Um, And it doesn't show in search or in conversations unless you click a button to see more. It's kind of a quality filter like the one that, uh, but it goes further like the one that users have had for a while. Twitter says in testing, a 4% drop in abuse reports from search and 8% fewer abuse reports from people who are looking at it in conversation. So, um, what do you what do you all think about Twitter trying to take another crack at improving the quality of what we see on Twitter? Craig, what do you think? It's absolutely essential, right? It, it's, it, I mean, those of us have been on Twitter for a while. Remember what we call the good old days, where it was just people, you know, it it was the water cooler for the internet, right? It was just casual conversation, discussions, you know, meeting new people, learning new things. Um, and there has, you know, that, that's, that's what made it popular. That's what made it grow. That's what, what, uh, why, you know, it struck a chord with, with the online community. Um, but of course, when something like that happens, all sorts of unsavory elements start to take advantage of it. And yeah, you've got to, you've got to police the thing, right? And I think one of the problems that Twitter has is that it's a huge fire hose, right? There's, you know, we, we you know, everybody sees what, you know, the, the, the crap that shows up in their own timeline. But, you know, there are literally hundreds of millions of timelines where this crap is showing up. So, you know, they, they've got to have some sort of mechanism, both machine oriented and human oriented to, to deal with this. And I'm, I'm glad they're they're doing something about it. Yeah. It's really all you can say at this point. Now, will that be effective? You know, only time will time will tell. Yeah, I remember when the at the height of uh, some like really bad Twitter abuse uh, spikes last year and the year before that this was one of the criticisms of Twitter was you guys have a lot of signal here. It's not hard for us to see that this is a troll account. That is that has been created and it's disposable and it's anonymous and all it's doing is is treating people badly. Why do we have to go through the rigmarole of reporting this thing to get it suspended? You have the data here. And it sounds like, you know, they're not necessarily suspending all of these accounts, but they're able to say, yeah, this is this is probably not anything anyone needs to see. And I think one of the most effective moderation techniques in online communities in general is the is hiding what the, the troll uh, sees. I think we used to call it Tacky Goes to Coventry, which was from some uh, web uh, discussion package somewhere. But it's basically a feature that they can shout and shout and shout to their heart's content, and they don't realize that nobody sees what they say. There's power yeah. in that because, it, yeah. you know, they, they the, the troll wants attention. Right, right. The A couple of us in, at the Icon Factory have you know, had tweets that have generated some controversy, you know, and you start hearing from these accounts and, you know, initially you think, oh, well, I'm just going to block this person. But that's actually something that that person, you know, they feel like they won, right? They, they, they gotcha. Um, Whereas if you just mute them, they continue to spout this, this nonsense and you don't know about it. It's, I think, you know, one of the things that's happening here is, is is Twitter is legally required in Germany to, to block Nazis and and you know that that kind of hate speech, um, and you know maybe that's they're taking some of the things that they've they've done you know 
because they're legally required to and, you know, applying them to the things that are happening here in the U.S. where, you know, we definitely have a problem with hate speech. There's no doubt mm. in my mind that, that that's an issue. So, Melissa, Stephen, any any uh, thoughts about Twitter trying to make the service better? I, I would say that uh, a big reason I'm not on Twitter is because I don't want to see that stuff. Yeah. And um, I think it's really tough for me and I think most Americans because we want to say I believe in free speech and people should be able to say whatever they want. Uh, and this is part of a sort of a larger cultural discussion about what people what what is tolerable and not tolerable of what someone might say. Um. And it's a tough, it's a tough issue, but I just can't look at that every day. And I also feel that, um, social media platforms, not just Twitter, but Facebook need to face up to their responsibility as disseminators of other people's stuff, you know, and they're like, Oh no, we're just a platform. We're not responsible, you know, but they are because they're enabling it. Right. They're enabling the good and the bad. Um, it's interesting that you know that you're not that you don't look at Twitter because you don't want to see this stuff. I've noticed in the last few months that my use of Twitter has gone down pretty significantly for the same reason. Yeah, right. It's like it's just like this is stuff is overwhelming. I'm not sure that Twitter realizes this is happening. You know, that people are getting overwhelmed with all of the unhealthy conversation. You know, they're talking about healthy conversation while there's you know the unhealthy is is a, is a two way street. So, you know, just, just to keep my health, <laughs> just not using Twitter as much, which is kind of telling yeah. considering I've been using Twitter for so long and been so heavily involved with it. So, yeah, it's, it's true. Steven, any thoughts about this one? Yeah. I mean, I don't envy their position in trying to figure this out because I mean, Craig, like you said, any one person's uh, experience with Twitter is just one of millions and millions of variations on that experience, right? And it's not like the old days where I could really build the community I wanted, and I think we all did that, but now it's so big and it's overrun by so many, I don't even want to say people because they're not all people, so many accounts that are just spewing just bile into the universe. Uh, I don't, like, I'm not smart to figure that out, and I don't think Twitter is either, honestly. I don't think this is something they can fix uh, just by the very nature of the of the product they have created. And it, like you said, it has brought good and has brought bad. Ultimately, though, I think that it is um, – that they can make these, these changes at the edges. I think their blog post said, you know, 4%, 8% improvement, but – they're not going to be able to close that gap. They're not going to be able to get that get that next 96, 92% of complaints taken care of because it's just it's just too big and it's just too wild to to ever rein it back in. So, you know, I, I don't know if I'm in the camp that Twitter is doomed ultimately, but I, I don't think that it's ever going to be safe for everyone who wants to use it. And I think that's a real shame. There's also a question of what Twitter wants to be. And because uh, it's many things. And I think Twitter has seen growth in the idea that it's kind of a broadcast medium, that there are huge 
uh, content creator type people who throw things out into Twitter and they have audiences who see it. And then maybe the audiences reply and they, they argue about it or whatever. But the problem with that is that's not really a conversation. And the people who are throwing out that content as the huge content creators are basically not looking at the conversation. They're just pushing out their stuff. It's not, it's a one way broadcast medium kind of thing. And I think that that is probably still going strong on some level. Um, but the other layer of it, which is smaller groups having smaller sets of conversations and uh, all of that, that's where I, I talk to people and everybody feels kind of ground down by Twitter. I, I still use Twitter a lot, but what I don't do is broadcast as much on it as I used to. And certainly when I do post things on Twitter, I um, I think twice and sometimes three times about oh, yeah. what I want to oh, share. Yeah. And uh, stuff that I used to share on Twitter, I just don't bother now because I know what I'm going to get. I know that I'm going to get people who are going to attack me. I know that I'm going to get people who are going to make jokes that aren't funny based on words that I use, uh, that, that I know what I know what the words are. I know what the jokes are going to be. And I finally like, you know what? I'm not going to even bother because I, I don't need to I don't need to act out this this role. And I know exactly what's going to come. And the net result is that I'm much more closed with what I share on Twitter. I'm uh, I'm fortunate. Fortunately, I mean, I'm quick to mute people who I just don't want to see, and that has helped some. The addition of the mute concept globally has been a good thing for Twitter for the same reason as what I said before. You cannot see what somebody says without giving them the finger by blocking them, and that is useful. Like, they can still follow you, and they can say whatever they want, and you just don't see it. There's there's some value in that, too. But a lot of stuff I just don't post. And if I I keep it to myself or I put it in a Slack where I'm surrounded by people who I, um, who I like and who are not going to do those same annoying reactions. And that's just I, I do think that's a problem for Twitter that that uh, a lot of its users are like, I'm just not going to share anything here because that dries up the whole conversation. Yeah. They, you know, it, Twitter, I think, sees its competition as Facebook. But in reality, at least in my experience, in my sphere, um, its competition is Slack. Right. You know, yeah. you have to consider the consequences of anything you say on Twitter these days, whereas in Slack with its you know group of people that you work with or a group of people that you know, our longtime friends, you can say whatever the hell you want, right? And you don't have to consider those consequences. You know, they may call you on it, but, you know, they'll do it in a constructive way because they're friends, they're colleagues. It's, uh, you know, you know, sometimes I've even been known to, you know, test out tweets on Slack, you know, so I'm going to, I'm about to post this on, <laughs> on Twitter. What do you guys think? Right. Yeah. Oh, no, don't do that. You're going to hear about such and such or, oh, yeah, that sounds fine. You know, and it's 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 kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 it, there's a lot of a lot of uh, it, 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 it digs. It, it takes too much of your attention sometimes. Yeah. And people right? I mean, sometimes what people want to do, what people want to get out of a service like this is different. There are people who who really like to argue. Um, and, yeah. and they don't necessarily even believe what they're arguing, but they just want to argue with you. They just want to fight with you. And I had that happen with uh, a couple of people this week that it was really dispiriting because I had somebody who basically um, uh, both of them were basically advancing things they didn't actually believe were true or relevant just for the sake of argument and you know i guess that's fine but my response was basically dude i'm not interested in this argument theoretical uh you know just for the fun of 
of being a devil's advocate. I muted in uh, Twitterific, by the way, the Twitter client that I use, and we'll talk about that more in a, m- a moment, thanks to the Icon Factory. Um, I muted, um, somebody gave me a hashtag that was like, hashtag devil's advocate, and I was like, yep, that's gone. That's gone. I never <laughs> want to see the devil's advocate, because that's literally like, I don't believe this, but let's fight about it anyway. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going yeah, to engage yeah, with you. Yeah. So It's a challenge right. for Twitter all around. Um, there are things that Twitter does better than anything else. I think live events breaking news things like that to seeing uh, reaction and updates and things twitter does an incredible job on it is it is really the best service for that i think right now but um you know that limits its appeal like like 24-hour cable news it's really great when something's going on and then they've got to fill the rest of the time what fills the rest of the time <laughs> is is yep. often uh, garbage okay we have more twitter stuff to talk about including the ability to get that information live as it happens versus kind of on a delay when you ask for it, which is something weird that's going on technically that affects Craig and his company and the app that uh, that he helped create. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our uh, other sponsor on this episode, which is Simple Contacts. It's pretty great when an app takes a tiresome task and makes it fuss-free. Simple Contacts does this by being an easy way to renew your contact lens prescription. You can reorder your contacts from anywhere in just minutes. You complete their online self-guided vision test in less than five minutes from wherever you are right right now. No more doctor's offices or waiting rooms for a contact lens renewal. If all you need is more boxes of your contact lenses, you can get it right from their website or their app. They've got all the brands you love. They've got all the options like astigmatism, which I had, and I thought they're not going to have my lenses. They totally did. Multifocal lenses, colored lenses, a whole lot more, all from the palm of your hand. $20 for the vision test, just for comparison. An appointment without insurance at your uh, local eye doctor would cost you maybe, maybe $200 or more um, so you can save money and time it's not a replacement for seeing your doctor to have your eye health examined your periodic full eye health exam you need to do that simple contacts is for that time when you just need a refill and the way your doctor kind of uh, builds some of their business sometimes with glasses and contacts is they kind of put a barrier there and say well you really need to come in and have a have a contact lens appointment of some sort and then we'll reorder them for you and that's the that's the stuff that simple contacts tax wants to make easier just the renewal go see your doctor have your periodic full eye health exam um, and when you renew you can do it much more simply with simple contacts as a listener to download you can save $30 off your contact lenses go to simplecontacts.com slash download or enter download at checkout that's simplecontacts.com slash download or simply use the code download and you'll get $30 off thank you to simple contacts for supporting download all right. Uh, other ch- Twitter topic. And the reason that I asked Craig to be on here, because this is uh, something that happened yesterday. Uh, so Twitter is shutting off an API that's used by third-party cl- Twitter clients like Twitterific, which is which is Craig's Twitter client, also Tweetbot, and many others, being cut off on August 16th. It was originally planned for June. Uh, everybody complained, including the developers and the people who use their products. Twitter gave it a little bit of a reprieve, but they haven't changed the policy, which is that the new account activity API doesn't offer everything third-party developers are used to. After that date, uh, a lot of features are going to have to change in third-party apps, like a loss of notifications for likes and retweets, uh, notifications notifications for tweets, mentions, quotes, DMs, and follows uh, that would be that would be only after a delay. The timeline, you'll have to fetch the timeline every so often. It won't stream live. So, Craig, 
Um, tell me about what this means for people who use third-party uh, Twitter clients. What's going to happen in August? Well, it, it all depends still. All right. It's I, all to play we, for. We're, st- we're, 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 we're still waiting to hear from Twitter as far as, you know, enterprise pricing um, on this, this new account activity API, um, which is they currently have it set up that it, it costs uh, $2,900 um, for 250 users. So that's, you know, if you do the math and include, you know, maybe some subscription fees that Apple charges and stuff like that, it's, it's somewhere around $16 a user a month. That's too expensive, to be honest. It's it, nobody's, you know, on, especially on iOS, you know, where you have to get to get 99 cents from somebody is like pulling teeth, right? It's just really <laughs> yeah. painful for people to spend money on, on iOS. So going into iOS and saying, okay, yeah, we're going to charge you $16 a year or, you know, or $16 a month. And, you know, which is like, you know, a couple hundred dollars a year, people are just going to go no way. So, you know, maybe that may, we're hoping that, that there's going to be some more favorable stuff with uh, enterprise pricing that, that 200, you know, 250 users for, you know, 3000 bucks sounds to me like they're looking at you know, apps that may be like doing customer support. You know, I could see if you had 250 um, customer support representatives using Twitter, you know, charging them $3,000 a month, that's totally reasonable. You know, you can see that being, you know, a a value proposition. It's not a value proposition for uh, a third-party Twitter client that wants to generate push notifications from, you know, hundreds of thousands of users. I mean, if if you extrapolate these numbers for the premium pricing, you know, Third-party developers are going to be paying like half a million dollars a month for the number of users we need to support. That that's just not going to happen. And third-party developers are pretty crafty too, right? We are already thinking of ways that we could s- sort of do notifications. You know, maybe they're not real time. Maybe there's a you know two or three minute delay. But you know, we could do something. Um, we hope we don't have to do that. But you know, there might there may be some options there. I mean, John Gruber put it really well last night. You know, they're they're trying to break up with us, with us by being a jerk. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's classic Gruber, but it, and it's it's classic Gruber because it's it gets to the point, right? They're you know, and the apps of a feather website is just us saying, "Hey, look, these are the ways you're being a jerk." Yeah, right? can you please not do this? And. You know, maybe it, it, as it is now, the, the the thing that people are going to probably be annoyed with the most is during a live event like an Apple keynote, let's say, you're not going to see tweets in your third party client as they happen. Right. There's going to be a two or three minute delay. And that's important when you're dealing with a live event. Like I said, you know, whether, what you know, Twitter is maybe best at is dealing with live events and and you're going to only yeah. be able to refresh and you'll be able to hit the refresh button all you like but it it gates you right it won't actually let you refresh except every two minutes or something another thing that i see as a potential problem is uh direct messaging you know people who use direct you know third-party client for doing direct messaging again that's something where you know real time you know you, you send them you send a direct message to somebody they may not see it for two or three minutes that's kind of an awkward conversation. You know, you say, I love you to somebody and you don't hear back. I love you immediately. You're thinking, well, what's going on here? Right. You know, or, you know, something like that. Right. It's where it's, you know, it's, there's banter going back quickly between two people. 
you know, you enter a two or three minute delay in that, it's going to be a problem. What's worse is that you don't get any kind of notification that there's a new direct message coming in. Um, you know, again, you'll have to pull an API to get that notification. And again, considering, considering Apple, or excuse me, that, uh, that Twitter doesn't have a, a client on the Mac, there's really no way to get a, a direct message notification anymore on Mac OS. Yeah, that, right? that, they're, that's they're, the thing that blows they, me they away. They don't, they don't do Safari notifications or, or Firefox notifications or anything like that either, right, in their web app. So there's literally no way to do it. You got to have your 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 official Twitter app on your phone, and then just have that tell you basically about the notifications. Right, right, right. And then you get into the the situation. Well, okay, I kind of like having my phone turned off while I'm working at my Mac, so it's not a distraction, you know. And and we've all done this, right? You know, you pick up your phone to look at a notification on your iOS device, and an hour later, you realize you're not working on your Mac. Right. It, it's 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 kind of easy to get distracted too much. Whereas, you know, if, if you're if your focus stays on the Mac screen, you're likely to stay on the Mac screen. So wh- where is this where is this going? It, it, is it, it what are what are our possibilities here? Is Twitter going to just keep kind of squeezing until you guys give up? Or do you have some hope that they might adjust uh, their policies in order to allow some of these third-party clients to... I mean, it. I just don't believe that Twitter... This has got to be um, neglect more than, than anything, right? Like, this can't be a major segment of Twitter's audience that's using third-party clients. So, it, you know... Oh, no. So, no. so I'm it's... sure they're not, they're not trying to kill them because it's competition at this point, as much as that they don't want to bother... Uh, you know, supporting them? Is that what what's going on I, here? Yeah, I, I I don't think it's a matter of support. I mean, we're, we don't require a lot of support, right? We're just using the stuff that they use that they use internally. It's not like, you know, we're a burden. Their app has to do, do the same stuff your app has to do. Yeah, exactly. 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 And, and, you know, this new API that they've, they've announced is, is, is pretty nice. I mean, it's nice. It, the, the thing that, that, is holding us back is the pricing mm. more than than the the technology. Um, one thing I fear that Twitter doesn't understand is that, like you and I, Jason, it's like we're longtime Twitter users. We're highly engaged in the surface, and we contribute a lot because of that, right? And we're more likely to be using a third party client because we're in that situation. Right. We, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that happens in the, the official client is to, to drive engagement. Well, you know, you and I have been using Twitter for what? Uh, ever 10, 11 years. It's like, it's long enough to, it's like, we know, we know how it works and we don't need that. You know, it actually kind of gets in the way, you know, the non chronological timeline. Right. No, I, I think that's a pain in the butt. Um, you know, because I know who to follow. I know how to look at threads. I, you know, know when to take something over into a direct message thread instead of, you know, cluttering up a timeline, you know, so on and so on. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're a small part of the overall Twitter ecosystem, but I think we're probably a fairly influential part of that right. as well. And that's the thing I fear that, that Twitter doesn't, doesn't understand and you know if you start messing with those influencers right yep you know you and i go and look at microblog or mastodon right 
all of a sudden we're no longer on Twitter. And the people that want to communicate with us, well, guess what? They're going to move over to that new service too. And that, you know, I've been around long enough to see the rise and fall of a lot of different social media. Everything, you know, from bulletin board systems to Usenet to AOL to uh, MySpace. You know, there is a period where these things are super popular and then they're not. Twitter can definitely be in that situation if they're if they're not careful Uh, maybe i'm old-fashioned but i one of the reasons that i always gravitate toward twitter and i don't gravitate toward facebook historically leaving aside everything from um you know from recent facebook stories is that twitter lives in an app on my computer every day while i'm working and an app is in my dock and maybe it's visible and I can go in there and I can do stuff and then I leave. And Facebook is not in an app on my computer. It's in a web page that I don't go to because it's a web page that I don't auto load Facebook or something like that. I have to think to load load Facebook in my web browser. And maybe I'm an outlier, but it seems really weird to me that Twitter's like, yeah, just use the website. And they think that that's an answer on on computers, at least during during the day. Like, I get that there's an official cl- Twitter client for iOS, which I've tried, uh, especially on the iPad, and I think it's kind of awful. But at least there's an app. But on, on having killed the Mac version of their product, they're basically just saying, forget it, just use the website. And, you know, I don't understand that at all. Well, the, the, the very first Twitter app I wrote back in 2007 was to solve that exact problem, right? It was, it, Twitter was in a web page, right? That web page had no kind of notification. It was, it was clunkier to use than a native app. Um, now their web page has gotten a lot better, right? It's like, you know, first version sure. of Gmail or the current version of Gmail is a lot better than, you know, Yahoo Mail back in 2007. Great. You know, that's, that goes without saying. But the native experience is still better, right? The native experience can be more more integrated with your your where you're working, uh, and if you're working on a Mac, you want your Twitter to be on a Mac. Um, now, the fact that they're saying, you know, just use the web browser, well, you know, maybe they'll implement Safari notifications. Maybe that'll be a thing. But to be honest, that that direct messaging UI in, in Twitter is kind of their weak spot ui wise um i find it really difficult to navigate around and and use and you know to be notified that that things are happening there it's kind of uh yeah. it's kind of it's kind of buried right you know I, I you know maybe what they're doing here is they're saying we don't want to be in the direct message business anymore yeah yeah it could be it could be i tried to send you a dropbox link on dm earlier and it just said nope because they've got yeah. they've, they've blacklisted certain URL strings and all that, and yeah, maybe they maybe they don't want to be in it, which is weird because that again might be an opportunity for them, but maybe they just don't want to. I, I'm not entirely convinced Twitter knows what it really wants to be, and I think it's trying everything, and yet it is because it's thrashing around. It's also sort of trying nothing because it's doing too much, uh, too little, you know, at, at too little uh, amounts of effort because it's spread too thin. I don't know. It's too bad. It's a service that I, I have loved and that I still use a lot. And I'm going to be really sad when it uh, becomes totally irrelevant and I'd stop using it. But, uh, you know, you know, that that whole trying new things, that's something that the third parties used to bring to the table. Right. And, and then if it worked, Twitter could jump on it. 
Yeah, and they did, right? You know, hashtags. Yeah. Reply chains. You know, all of this, you know, hell, the 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 the, the bluebird icon mm-hmm. is something that we did originally. And they thought, oh, that's you know, and that's they an came idea. up with their own branding, they had their own unique take on it. Great, fine. I don't I don't have a problem with that. You know, the the fact that we came up with the word tweet and they kind of resisted using the word tweet for for many years and then you know now it's like you hear about you know tweets on the the nightly news yeah. right so it's it's you know we <clears throat> we have a lot to contribute and they, again they're they're like well we don't want those contributions we're going to do it all ourselves it's it's frustrating okay. cuz as a as a mac user i would really like them to say yeah we don't care about the mac enough to write software for it so we're just going to let these third parties do it and they they can do it and innovate and you know whatever cuz we're not worried we just want you to use the service and they haven't done that and it's 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 frustrating i hope things change i hope uh, i hope there's an answer for you guys and all, all of your colleagues who make uh, make twitter apps um yeah likewise yeah all right well let's move on i've got a couple of updates before we're done uh a story you might have missed something that may have flown under your radar wanted to mention whole foods perks are coming to amazon prime customers prime members are going to get an additional 10 percent off of sale items they have to scan the prime code found in the whole foods market app and then present the app at checkout blurg come on guys find a better way of making me be able to identify as a prime member at checkout than to have to launch an app and have them scan a barcode that is really uh really not great so that feels very much like like old uh old uh (laughs) responses to like um to apple pay in the day where it's like no 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 we're going to create a coupon app that you'll launch and it's like no i don't want to do that (laughs) i really don't want to do that it's going to start in florida this program but it's going to roll out the summer to all whole foods food stores i guess i'll download your app to save money but i really don't want to that's i please you you should know they should know who i am and just uh i don't know how they do that something to identify i go to whole foods not every day but you know three or four times a week and i've stopped taking my phone to Whole Foods. I'm out of my dog walk. My Apple Watch has got everything I need, yep. right? I can do app, Apple Pay. If you tell me to launch an app, <laughs> I don't have the thing to launch it on. No, they better. Right? They, I was thinking, just put it put it in a, in wallet for iOS at least, but, you know, and, and do the equivalent on Android and let me just sort of like scan it twice yeah. or tie it in. I believe Apple Pay has a facility where you can basically do a loyalty card um, kind of thing. And I think that that's going to be, everybody wants to do that. And that's fine. That's fine. But yeah, to launch there, the Whole Foods app, like, is this a ploy to get me to launch the Whole Foods app? Maybe it's a ploy. I don't like it. It's engagement. Oh. Engagement. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I don't want to engage with them. I just want to buy peanut butter. Right. Uh, exactly. You're. You're. It, it, it's a kind of thing where okay, they're trying to to to, to market to you when you know you're you're already there. You're already. I'm buying products at your store. I'm, you're, I'm doing okay. You're, you're in, literally in the market. <laughs> yep. I am anti ecosystem, so I belong to a lot of ecosystems. So I don't not dependent on any single one, and my. Uh, visits to Whole Foods dropped by about 100% after Amazon <laughs> bought them because I knew exactly where this was going and I wanted no part of it. I, I don't have that option because that's I the know. store that I can walk to. Like, that yeah. is literally the store I can, same here. I can just take a stroll to Whole Foods and therefore I, I end up like Craig going there all the time for I'm one thing. I'm not judging you, but I'm very suspicious. It, it, the, I have the same suspicions, but I also enjoy driving once a week 
yeah. to a Trader Joe's. Yeah. And that's, that's my only other shopping. Yeah. Right? No, so I, I get it. Well, we'll see what Amazon continues to do and if they just ruin Whole Foods or if they make it better or something in between, make it differently awful. I don't know. We'll find <laughs> out. Um, before we go, we do like to end on a, a positive note. And so the Fuzzy Puppy update this week comes from Arizona State University's Canine Science Collaboratory. Mm, interesting. Which uh, It's a study uh, from a professor there named Clive Wynn suggesting they've tried to find out when puppies are the cutest. That's it. Literally a whole study. <laughs> when are puppies the cutest? And the answer is between six and eight weeks old, which, by the way, I adopted a puppy um, a long time ago now, um, at, and it was eight weeks old. And that was like they said the prime that's prime puppy adoption time is six to eight weeks old, too, because they're old enough. But also, come on, it's because they're at their cutest. Uh, uh, Professor Wynn said just as their mother is getting sick of them and is going to kick them out of the den and they're going to have to make their own way in life at that age. That is exactly when they are the most attractive to human beings. This may actually be an evolutionary change that helped dogs slowly change into domestic animals. Uh Lots of lots of studies about dogs, as we pointed out, and not as many about cats, because dogs are are uh, more likely to be willing to be studied than cats. Cats are kind of a pain. <laughs> I have both. It's fine. That I think that's accurate. Uh, but anyway, I think this is uh, another example where, you know, what makes a dog different from a wolf? The wolves and how long they keep their, their pups is completely different. And so this is an interesting way that dogs have maybe adjusted them, uh, you know, themselves and how they handle their their young in order to um, be the most effective creatures at living with human beings. Yeah. Wolves don't poop on the on the floor in your house so you know it's kind of what this is all about right they can get they can get away with it that's right because they're just so cute because they're fuzzy puppies chewing on things you know it's like "Ah, that's that's isn't that cute now when we do the fuzzy puppy update if you're wondering that puppy is between six and eight weeks old that's what i'm saying uh what to look out for in the week ahead the school year is winding down so for those of us who work at home uh and our parents uh, we're screwed now. So, Stephen, <laughs> Stephen uh, yeah. yeah, you and me, not good. buddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Anyway, that <laughs> it's good. It's, uh, oh, well. I'm going to enjoy the next couple of weeks while I can. That brings us to the end of this edition of Download. Melissa Rio Frio, thank you for being here. Where can people find the stuff that you do? Uh, they can go to PCWorld.com. And don't go on Twitter because she's got an account, <laughs> but she's not there. She's not there. Craig Hockenberry, where can people find the stuff that you do? Oh, all over the place. But you should probably start at iconfactory.com or furbo.org. One is my company, the other is my blog. Excellent. And Stephen Hackett, thank you very much for being back this week. It's good to have you back. You bet. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. I've been your host, Jason Snell. And until next week, we will keep watching those headlines so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.